0: I too want to say good morning and welcome. And you might want to say, good morning. "Good morning." This is good. This is good for us to be able to gather like this and exalt Christ together. I trust the Lord has great things for us today as we're encouraged and equipped for ministry. By way of introduction, I'll tell you a brief story that we thought was pretty humorous in our family. My wife Molly was kind enough to be doing some things to redecorate my office here at the church and. I have a bunch of different kinds of pictures, you know, godly things like water sports and things like that. And uh, on the serious side, a print of uh, an old print, obviously, of John Calvin came, and he's got the kind of cap on and uh, sitting there with a, 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 not a pen, a quill writing. And it's very studious, and I thought it might inspire some studying. And so the the print came, and, and uh, I brought it home to show Molly that the print came, and it's sitting uh, off to the side. And my daughter Allie, who is six, pointed to the picture, and she wanted to know when it was that Don Carson would be coming to our church. <laughs> and uh, so, and uh, I said, "Well, actually, Allie, that's not that's not Don." And uh, and he was here before, but you were a little baby, so you don't remember what he looks like. But I was thinking, I'll use that story to introduce him today. And uh, it got a little bit stranger. She knows enough about church history, just on a little kid level, because we do all kinds of different things. We read together as a family. And I said, actually, no, Allie, that's John Calvin. And she said, but he's coming to our church later, right? (laughs) So you just have to love kids, and they make you laugh, and uh, they're a blessing from God in so many different ways. Well, I bet we could have gotten a lot more people if we would have said John Calvin would be speaking here. (laughs) Well, the topic at hand is uh, relevant to all of us, and I won't try to introduce it lest I uh, take something away from our speaker, but we will suffer in this world and we deal with uh, difficulties in this life. We've been promised that even in this fallen world. So the topic at hand is relevant. It always will be until the Lord returns. Uh, Our speaker uh, comes to us as one who has walked with the Lord for many years, has been teaching in theological education for many years. As a pastor's heart, uh, his books have been so helpful to so many of us. Uh, That's why so many of you are here. Uh, I would simply say that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us, the church, good gifts to equip us for Christian living and for ministry. And uh, I'm so thankful that he gave us the good gift of Don Carson to come and teach us even now. So let's give him a good Cornhusker welcome. And Don, please come and encourage us.
1: Dear Pat, an entirely fresh way of telling me that I'm getting old. All I have to say is that when I arrived at the Omaha airport yesterday afternoon, he had told me in advance that he was flying in from the West Coast just ahead of me, and he'd wait there for me if the plane schedules would cooperate, and then he'd pick me up and drive me to the hotel. So I come off this plane, and there's this dude whom I had seen some years before, but he's wearing shorts and looks very fit and tanned with a huge backpack, and all he wants to talk about is wakeboarding. (laughs) Here I come to talk about suffering, and he wants to talk about wakeboarding. Now, I ask you, if you don't know anything about uh, him and his son, who's now third in the nation at the age of 11 for his age range, I'm sure he'll talk to you about that at the break, too, if you go and ask him. Well, let's bow together in prayer. We marvel at your most holy word, Heavenly Father, for while so often it speaks of the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, of joy that cannot be articulated, full of hope and glory, It also, with astonishing candor, speaks of suffering and pain, disease and war. It speaks of heaven and hell. It is hard to imagine any book being more utterly realistic than this one. Yet it does not encourage us to focus inward. So grant, Lord God, as we think through some of these topics together in the light of the holy scriptures, that we will not simply come away with increased numbers of propositions, but with a genuine living encounter with your own dear son, who is called the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief grant to us not only increased understanding, though we do ask for that, but increased confidence in you, our maker, our redeemer, our judge, our sustainer. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. If you live long enough, you will suffer. If you haven't suffered yet you will the only alternative is not living long enough if you live long enough you will be bereaved if you live long enough you'll contract cancer consumptive heart failure you might go through a divorce you might have a road accident get fired from a job or two. If you live long enough, you will suffer. If you live long enough, you'll lose children. 150 years ago, almost every family lost some children. We don't expect that anymore in the medicalized West. Many parts of the world, people still lose children. But if you live long enough, you will lose some too. Church where, where I served some decades back in Canada had a woman in, in it who was 94 when I knew her, a widow, a widow three times who had lost all her children at the age of 94. I knew a man, Norman Anderson. He eventually was knighted by the Queen. He was Sir Norman Anderson who had been a missionary in the Muslim world and uh, a brilliant scholar in Oriental studies. His first child, a medical doctor, a woman, went to the Congo as a missionary, as it then was, the Belgian Congo, and during the upheaval in which the Belgian Congo became Zaire in 1959, she was gang-raped. She was furloughed home eventually went to California to get more medical training, tripped, fell down some stairs, and drowned in her own spittle. The second child died in circumstances no less bizarre. The third, who was about my age, went to Cambridge University about the time that I went, and um, he contracted a brain tumor and died at the age of 21 before he graduated. All three kids. I knew... Norman and Pat pretty well for the next 15 years, 20 years, until they died. And not once, not once did I ever hear him say that God wasn't fair or complain about his loss. How do you do that? Does that even make sense? suffering can be a sort of theoretical problem, a kind of David Hume challenge, a skeptic from a couple of centuries back. In the light of all the suffering in the world, how can God be simultaneously all-powerful and good? So it's a theoretical problem. And as such, it's something that you can knock about in a junior common room in a university or have a six-pack of beer over and argue about in front of the tube as you're watching a, a, f- a football game with a lot of one-liners. But it's when you suffer that it begins to bite. And many is the person who doesn't even think strenuously about this subject at all until something happens to you. You may even think you've got it nicely boxed and cubby-holed <laughs> until your spouse comes down with an acute cancer, and you watch the melanoma take them out in six weeks. We have on our faculty, a faculty member has been there for some time whose wife suffers from Huntington's chorea. Of all the wretched diseases I have seen in the world, that has got to be one of the most wretched. It's an awful disease. And each of their kids has a 50% chance of having the same disease. What shall we make of um, a tsunami that can kill 100,000? What shall we make of massive injustice, the kind of thing that you had for 15 years in southern Sudan and still have going on in south-western Sudan, in the Darfur area? We have just come through the bloodiest century in human history. 170 million people killed by their governments apart from war. You can actually track out these numbers on various websites. 170 million people, more than half the population of the United States, killed by their governments in the 20th century, apart from war. You can add them all up. Close to 50 million under Mao, 20 million under Stalin and the Ukraine, million and a half Armenians, a million Hutus and Tutsis. You just keep adding them up and adding them up, a third of the population of Cambodia. And, and that's apart from war. Of course, the questions about suffering and evil are asked by the Bible itself. It's important to recognize that we do not enter this subject pressed by the circumstances of the world. But just as careful Bible readers, we will come across these sorts of questions. Read the Psalms, for example. How often does the psalmist cry to God in an agony of uncertainty because of injustice that he perceives in his own life or in the nation. Or there's Jeremiah. Yes, yes, he cannot keep quiet because the word is burning within him, but quite frankly, he wishes God would go and take a hike somewhere so that he could get on with his life and, and not be constantly under the pressure of a government that is against him. And then there's Job. We'll come back to him. Job doesn't know about the first chapter which makes it even worse. We'll come back to him. And then there's Habakkuk. Oh, it, it, it's comprehensible, I suppose, Habakkuk thinks, that God could use one nation to chasten another nation. Yeah, it, it's, it's comprehensible. It's a theme that you find often enough in the Bible. But how could a moral God use a more wicked regional superpower to chasten his own covenant people who, by any sociological measurement, is less wicked than the superpower. Habakkuk has a real tough job with that one. And then there's Elijah. After this massive confrontation on Carmel, he thinks that revival is right at the door and discovers instead that he's still running for his life from Jezebel. And ends up on the backside of a desert utterly discouraged. What's the point in all this? And then there's the book of Revelation, with even believers under the throne already on the other side, still in some sense, grasping for answers. How long, O Lord? as they reflect on the suffering church, still left behind. Now, you may think you're going to hear three addresses on this subject. You're not. You're going to hear one long one. Oh, it's divided into three parts, you know, potty breaks and that sort of thing. But you must think of this as one talk. In other words... I'm not going to give you one balanced talk and then another balanced talk and then another balanced... I'm going to just give you one big one. So there's a sense in which you won't see how the parts fit together till you get the three parts together. What I want to do in these three addresses now declared one is give you six pillars. In other words, instead of a half dozen proof texts or a few abstract uh, practical thoughts... I I want to give you six huge theological pillars that are clearly and unambiguously taught in Scripture. Three massive pillars which together support a platform to constitute a perspective that enables you to think about these things in a biblically faithful way. In other words, I'm I'm not just going to give you a, a proof text. I'm going to give you a whole theology of suffering that is is sort of reduced in the presentation to six big pillars. And if you listen only to the first pillar, then you will be able to say to yourself again and again, Don, you're not being realistic. I mean, what about this? And What about that? And What about the other? And all I have to say is, hang on, there are five more pillars to go. And, And you've got to get all of these pillars in place before you have a platform broad enough to give you a perspective that is biblically robust and reasonably faithful. And then, having said all of that, at the very end, I will add one more thing, namely, that when it actually comes to helping people who are going through it at their worst moments, a lot of it doesn't help anyway. Because when people are going through it at their worst moments, often they don't want all the theology and can't hear it. We'll we'll come to that this afternoon. Often what you have to do at that point is provide a shoulder to cry on and babysitting service and if it's a big disaster, helicopters and relief water and all this kind of thing. So in one sense, what I'm giving you now is not designed for people who are going through the worst of it. Rather, what I'm giving you is prophylactic spiritual medicine. This is medicine you need before you get there. If you get these things truly in place in your mind and your reasoning and your value system before you get there, then you will have a stable frame of reference to handle it when you get there. Or this is also medicine for somebody who's been through it and is beginning to come out the other side and is still seeing through their tears, but at least their ears are open enough now to start listening again. This might help you. But let me tell you, if you're right in the midst of it, you might already be thoroughly ticked off by what I've said so far. In other words, when you're in the midst of it, you can be so blinded by the rage and the sorrow and the hurt that it is very, very hard to listen. I know that. In which case, listen to the recordings in six months. But this is really medicine to prepare you in advance or to start giving you a biblically faithful framework after the fact. Okay, here we are. Six pillars to support a Christian worldview that enables you to think about these things in a biblically faithful and fruitful way. Number one. Insights from the beginning of the Bible storyline. Insights from the beginning of the Bible's storyline. In particular, insights from Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 3, and a whole lot of texts that follow from that. That is, insights from the creation and the fall. Now, from this side of the um, Enlightenment, from about 1600 on, we we have developed ways of thinking that try to establish proofs for the existence of God and the like. People talked about proofs for the existence of God before that. but, But from about 1600 on, Western thinkers have tried to picture human beings as independent knowers who can actually reasonably talk about whether there's enough evidence for the existence of God out there, as if we stand independently of the whole. But interestingly enough, the Bible does not begin by saying, now let us consider together the possibilities of God's existence. These are the pros and these are the cons. It it actually just begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you will grant for a moment that this is true, if you will grant for a moment that God already existed before anything else did, and that he has made everything, then the fact that we want to evaluate whether he exists is already an evidence of our incredible lostness. If there had never been a fall, if God had made everything, and we, made in his image, knew him intimately, do you think we would be holding learned disquisitions on whether or not God exists? The very fact that you can start to think along those lines is already a mark from the Bible's point of view of how lost and blind we already are. But the Bible just does begin with, in the beginning, God made everything. Now, the reason I stress this, with respect to our topic, is that this helps to establish a worldview, a frame of reference, a way of looking at things. For example, in some frames of reference, in some worldviews, God and everything made are all part of the same thing. That is, God is one with everything and is the summation of it all and somehow all of it together has a spiritual cast and nature and the universe and everything else is all God. It's called pantheism. Or then there's a refinement on that that says... Everything that is, is God, but God is not everything that is. That is, God is even bigger than everything that is, but everything that is 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 a big part of God, but then God is himself even bigger. That's panentheism. Now, if you hold either of those views, then whatever is wrong with the universe cannot be construed as the universe in rebellion against God because this universe is God, And and then people develop new ways of analyzing what's wrong. In some religions, for example, in fact, in the form of religion that predominated in the Roman Empire from uh, the early second century for about two and a half centuries, it, it was widely thought that what's fundamentally wrong with the universe is matter. Spirit is good by definition. Matter is at best dicey and at worst actually captivating and, 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 and wicked. Freedom, liberation from evil comes by getting detached from your body. Go, go back to the spirit world and everything's hunky-dory. That's what you really need. What's wrong is all of this flesh and my clothes and matter and molecules and all of that. If you can just be spiritual, then, then everything's fine. But that means that you're analyzing what the problem is differently from the person who thinks that God made everything good. If you read through Genesis 1, what do you see again and again? God made something or other, and he saw that it was good. Then he made something else, and he saw that it was good. When he gets down to the end of the whole creation narrative, God saw that the whole thing was good. It was very good. In other words, the Bible doesn't give any support for the view that matter is intrinsically bad. That's not where the problem lies. Nor does this give any credence, this biblical account, for what is often called today philosophical naturalism. This is the view that all there is, is matter and energy and space and time. That's all there is. It's not God. It's just a natural world. Matter and energy and space and time. And if you ask where it came from, well, the scientists are still debating it. There was a Big Bang. Well, what caused the Big Bang? Well, some people think there was a, an expanding and contracting everything. Um, it went back and forth and it keeps on going. And now there are new theories that are being developed. But, but in any case, uh, there's no place for God in this. It's just, it's just molecules bouncing. But, you know, although there are lots of efforts to escape the entailments of that view... It's really hard, if you hold that view, to say what good and bad are at all. A couple of years ago, I was asked by uh, CNN to, 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 to be the evangelical talking head on one of the um, talk show programs. And um, you know how they do this. The interviewer might be in Atlanta, and the other guy on the program was in um LA and I was in Chicago and because it had to be arranged at the last minute, they sent up a limo for me in North Chicago where I live. Now, they don't normally don't do that kind of thing, but this time they were desperate and so in the limo drive back down into town to get into the uh, studio, uh, I paid no attention to the driver. I, I, I was busy cramming, reading some papers so I wouldn't look like a twit on national TV, you know, and I got down there and did my TV thing. And then I got back in the limo for the drive back home. And this time I was relaxed, you know, sitting there. How are you doing? Just trying to chat up the driver. Turned out he was a 59-year-old Jewish man whose parents and everybody in that generation had been wiped out in the Holocaust. We talked about this and that. Turned out they had one daughter, 33 years old. Just six weeks earlier, her SUV in Kansas in the middle of winter had skidded, flipped, and she was now brain dead. They were just waiting to pull the plug. I said, how are you doing with that? He said, I've decided that the only way to think about it is um, molecules bounce. It, It happens. Molecules bounce. I said, um, is that the way you think about the Holocaust too? You know? Yeah, molecules bounce. Well, he was outraged, which of course is what I wanted.
0: <laughs>
1: he was angry. How dare you say that? was Shoah. It was the worst <laughs> evil. It was, it was it, 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 incredibly evil. I mean, how, how can you possibly say that? It was vile. It was wretched from beginning to end. It was, it was rotten. I said, so you do have a category for indignation because of moral evil after all, do you? And he said, are you saying that my daughter's death is evil? I said, of course that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that she was more evil than anybody else, but the Bible actually calls death the last enemy, that it's not normal, it's disgusting, it's a horrible thing, it's a, it's a wretched thing. Tell me, I said, would you look at, Death a little differently if you believe there was life on the other side. Oh, he said, I know just what you mean. My daughter's got this wonderful garden in Kansas, and I think she'd like to come back as a butterfly. Zing. (laughs) We were on different planets. And you realize how worldview shapes all of your discussions, do you see? But he couldn't be consistent. On the one hand, he wanted to look at his daughter's impending death in order to cope with the shock and the horror and the evil of it by saying, well, you know, it happens. M- molecules bounce. But he couldn't be consistent and say, well, you know, yeah, molecules bounce and they produce Hitler and molecules bounce and you produce Auschwitz. Molecules bounce and you have gas ovens. You can't do that. Somewhere along the line, you're outraged by it. Do you find yourself that... Atheists who are philosophical naturalists, do you find them a, a, a little more serene when it comes to injustice? Don't they have a category for good and evil themselves, especially when it affects them? Where does this come from? If it's just molecules bouncing, where's your sense of right or wrong or indignant? How can they come to Christians and start saying, how can you believe in a God who, who is good and sovereign when you have all of this evil around? Well, yes, Christians have to answer that. We're, we're in the process of taking one long three-part sermon to begin to get a <laughs> biblical approach to it. But you also have to say, oh, what's your understanding? Because, you see, this is not just a Christian problem. For anybody who thinks has got any moral decency at all, a- anybody who's made in the image of God, anybody who's concerned about right or wrong, in any sense, this is something we all have to face. I don't care whether you're Hindu or Muslim, or an atheist, whether you're a Gnostic, whether you're a liberal or a conservative, I don't care. Sooner or later, we all have to face this kind of thing. So it's not just a question of, oh, Christians have a dumb view versus everybody else, clearly brilliant and insightful. (laughs) Well, what you really have to do is in part pitch what the Bible says about these areas against all the other views that aren't even being faced honestly and realistically. So challenge back. And right at the very beginning of everything, you have to deal with the fact that the Bible establishes that God made everything and he made it good. And then we come to Genesis 3. I still often do university missions. Today in university missions, the overwhelming majority of non-believers there are biblically illiterate. They don't know the Bible has two testaments. They don't have a clue what's going on. And I often expound Genesis 3. I wish I had time now to unpack Genesis 3 for you in great detail. Let me, nevertheless, draw your attention to just a number of details. I, I, I don't have time to expound the whole chapter, but let me draw your attention to a number of details if you have your Bible. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, the word rendered, I'm using the NIV, the word rendered crafty does not always get translated crafty. The word crafty, in my ears at least, has a slightly negative overtone to it, you know, a bit of a deceitful person. And the serpent was more deceitful. But in fact, the word itself is a neutral word. Depending on the context, sometimes it just means prudent. So the serpent was more prudent? Oh, it depends on the context. And in fact, you can make a good case that God made this serpent, whatever this serpent embodies or symbolizes, God made this serpent with certain gifts, which when they're corrupted, become craftiness and not prudence. Now, the Bible does not here spend any time in this passage explaining where the serpent came from. But it does immediately rule out one or two possibilities. We're told right in the very first line of chapter 3, now the serpent was the most crafty prudent of all the creatures God had made. Whoa. Already, You do not have a competing God. You do not have a competing principle. A a, a good God and a bad serpent? Both eternal? A principle of good and a principle of evil? Stretching back into eternity? No, no. The serpent belongs to the created order. And although this passage does not directly describe how this serpent became serpent, if he too was originally made good, Yet there are other biblical passages in 2 Peter and Jude and elsewhere that, that describe the angelic beings as losing their place in heaven and rebelling against God out of arrogance. doesn't explain how. But even there, it indicates that at that order, the problem is in rebellion, not in matter, for example, or not because the being is already part God. A- and And then when you read on in this passage... It's fascinating to watch how the fall takes place. You know all of these funny little cartoons where you have a sort of a, a line drawing naked Adam and a naked Eve with long hair and bushes conveniently deployed so that they're not obscene, and a serpent coiled on, on, on a branch, and a lovely big apple hanging down as if God's got it in for apples. He's pretty keen on, on bananas and, and, and pineapples, but, you know, apples, you know, they're, they're bad. They're bad. And then you have all these cartoon figures, and, and the whole thing becomes a bit of a joke. What's going on here? The serpent's first approach is not to deny anything. It's to ask a question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? In other words, the devil's first approach is to make Eve doubt the word of God. (laughs) You mean God actually said that? You've got to be joking. Which in one sense is slightly flattering, isn't it? You have the capacity of standing in judgment of God. How cool is that? And then there's exaggeration. Did God actually say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? God hadn't said that. Chapter 2, verse 17 makes it clear that God had forbidden one tree, and one tree only, from all the rest you might eat. How many were there? Hundreds, thousands, who knows? Lots of them. But the question not only doubts what God says and his wisdom and goodness, it also portrays God as the cosmic party pooper. God doesn't want you to have any fun doesn't want you to eat from that tree or that tree or that tree. tree He just doesn't want you to do it. He's just mean. He's selfish, doesn't want you to eat from the trees in the garden. That's what God is doing. Do you really want to submit to that? Mm -hmm. That's the implication of the question, do you see? So that you not only stand in judgment of God in a theoretical way, but even while you're standing in judge of God, you're mentally casting an image of him of a cosmic level party pooper, spoiling everybody's fun. And she comes back, and at a certain level, she starts off well. God did not forbid all the trees in the garden. She's got that right. She's correcting him factually. But God did say you mustn't eat of one particular tree in the garden. Or even touch it. No, now she's gone one jot too high again. God didn't say anything about touching it. It's almost as if the serpent's got enough under her skin that she is saying, um, well, it was only one tree, but yeah, I'm not allowed to eat. I can't even touch the thing. So that once again, you see you're sort of standing in judgment of God. You only begin to see how far she is beginning to slip by imagining what she should have said. What should she have said? What she should have said is something like this. Are you out of your little skull? <laughs> I mean, give me a break. God's the creator. He knows what's best. How can I possibly say what's best? You know, he made me. He knows how I'm wired. He did the wiring. And he's put my husband and me here in paradise. I mean, is a pretty nice place, you know. And and I've got a husband who loves me and I love him. I mean, and, and we walk with him in the garden in the cool of the day. How could you possibly suggest that I, the creature, can stand over against God in judgment of him? This is ridiculous. Get out of here. But that's not what, that's not what she says. She begins to entertain the possibility that she can stand in judgment of God. And thus encouraged, the devil then makes his first explicit denial. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. The first doctrine denied in all of Scripture is the doctrine of judgment. It is often the first thing to go, because if you can get rid of that one, there are no sanctions and anything else can be tamed. Worse, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, as is so often the case, the devil is telling the truth and he's telling a lie. I mean, at the end of the chapter, God himself says that in the wake of the sin of Adam and Eve, God himself says they have now become like us, knowing good and evil. In one sense, he's telling the truth, but he's not telling the whole truth. The expression knowing good and evil can sometimes have the overtone in Scripture of knowing it by experience or the like. God knows the difference between good and evil because he's omniscient. They come to know the difference between good and evil by participating in the evil. My wife has almost died twice from cancer. She doesn't know nearly as much about cancer as the oncologists and surgeons that have treated her. Let me tell you, she knows a lot more about cancer than any one of them from the inside. So Adam and Eve will learn about good and evil all right, but not the way God knows about good and evil from the outside outside. as part of the knowledge of omniscience, but rather from the inside, by becoming evil. The devil doesn't mention that. Moreover, the expression to know good and evil often has another overtone to it in scripture. It means to establish good and evil, to be the being that actually sorts out what good and evil is. And now you put this verse in the storyline. God makes something, and he declares it good. Then he makes something else. And he declares it good. And then at the end of making everything, he declares it all very good. It is God's prerogative, God's place, God's knowledge that declares what good is. But now this woman is being invited, in effect, to make her own list of what's good and evil. She will declare what's good and evil. And now you see that this is not merely an invitation to break a law, to break a rule, No, it is breaking one of the things that God prohibited. It's more than that. It is the beginning of all idolatry. It is to de-God God. It is to stand in God's place. It is to be where God is and decide what good and evil is for ourselves. And the Bible then works hard all through its pages to tie all of human evil first and foremost to this beginning of rebellion, this initial fundamental idolatry. I wish I had time to work through the curses of this chapter, to work through the nature of death. But just remember where the Bible goes from here. I wish I had time to work through Romans 5 and how how in Adam all of us also sin and die. I wish I had time to work through those things. I don't. But just remember the Bible storyline for a start. The next chapter, the first murder, fratricide. The next chapter, the first lengthy genealogy, with the repeated refrain, So and so lived so many years, then he begat so and so, then he lived so many more years, then he died. So and so lived so many years, then he begat so and so, then he lived so many more years, then he died. So and so lived so many years, then he begat so and so, then he lived so many more years, then he died, and 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 he died. don't you see from God's perspective, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is the entailment from rebellion. And then the world is so evil that there's judgment in the form of the flood. And Noah, the preacher of righteousness, he comes out and probably gets roaring drunk. Pretty soon, the race is corrupted again with a Tower of Babel account. God, in his mercy, decides to begin a new humanity, as it were, and calls Abraham, Ur of the Chaldees, one of only two people in Scripture to be called a friend of God. Abraham is the father of the faithful, great man. He's also a filthy liar, risks his wife twice. And then there's Isaac, who's a bit of a wimp. And Jacob, known as the deceiver... And the 12 patriarchs, 11 of them, trying to kill, well, 10 of the 11, trying to either kill or sell to slavery, the 11th. One of them sleeping with his daughter-in-law. I mean, and these are the patriarchs. And eventually, of course, they land up in slavery in Egypt. And in due course, God raises up Moses. Moses is a great hero, isn't he? As a young man, he commits murder. And then when he's an old man and God wants to use him, he doesn't want to go. And yes, 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 he's praised a great deal. He's the humblest man on the face of the earth at the age of 80. Well, you learn a few things if you survive eight decades. But on the other hand, this man of great humility then loses his cool in the matter of the rock and never gets into the promised land. And then they get into the promised land. You get through these horrible cycles of sin and degradation amongst the covenant people until the people face a judgment again. And then, and then God in his mercy, when they cry out for help, raises up a judge and they're restored again to strength and security. And it only takes a generation or two before they slide again. And these horrible cycles with a repeated refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Did you hear that? Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. That's called idolatry. Establishing what is right for yourself. Marginalizing God. Putting off to the side. Not recognizing any accountability at all. Being your own God. You're at the center of the universe. God, how we need a king. So they get a king. Saul doesn't turn out too well, does he? But God graciously provides them with a David, a man after his own heart, he's regularly called, the sweet singer of Israel, a man after his own heart who promptly goes out and commits adultery and murder. One wonders what he would have done if he hadn't been a man after God's own heart. And then you just keep tracking this biblical story through and through and through until you finally come to Paul saying what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We'll come back to this passage a little later in the day. Let me remind you of it just the same. one eighteen. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Then you read through the next two and a half chapters. Paul's whole point is that whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, whether you have revelation from God in written form or not, or merely that which is stamped on the heart, none of us lives up to even what we do have. We're a damned breed. And God does not owe us salvation. Look at the end of this section, 3, 9 and following, before one of the greatest passages on the cross in the New Testament. We'll come back to this one later verse 9 of chapter 3. What should we conclude then? Are we any better? We Jews, are we better than Gentiles? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin as it is written. Then you have this catena of biblical quotations. Listen to them. Don't they make you uncomfortable? They just seem so over the top. Don't... Don't they make you uncomfortable? Most of you here, if not all of you, are Christians, but they still make us uncomfortable. Imagine talking about this today in a university setting where, 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 where you're dealing with a whole lot of people who don't know anything about what the Bible says. Get this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Oh, come on, Don, it is a bit over the top, isn't it? What about Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders? What about all the good things that uh, the good people do in all, all kinds of normal walks of life? You know, the single mom who raises her children with courage and so on, the, 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 the people who, who, who help out in all kinds of shelters and so on. Of course there are good people around, and <coughs> I'm one of them. And yet the biblical analysis, you see, is not denying any of those sociological realities. The Bible can often speak of good and bad in certain contexts in those relative categories. Yet at the deepest level of analysis, we don't know God. We run from Him. We want to make our own universe. One of the most striking passages on sin that I know is Psalm 51. It's written by David after he has committed the horrible sin regarding Bathsheba and then murdered her husband Uriah the Hittite and so forth. And, um, And then he's been confronted by the prophet Nathan and he repents and so forth. There are some corporal punishments meted out. Then he pens Psalm 51. When this is over, go back and read it. One of the things he says in the opening verses, addressing God in abject repentance is, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, at a certain level, that is a load of international class balderdash. I mean, of course he sinned against Bathsheba. He seduced her. He he sinned against uh, her husband. He cuckolded him sinned against the baby that was then conceived in Bathsheba's womb. Sinned against the military high command when he arranged that little skirmish by which Uriah the Hittite was killed. Sinned against his own family. He betrayed them. Sinned against the nation because instead of acting as the chief justice with integrity and so on, he's, he's mucking everything up. It's hard to think of anybody that he didn't sin against. And yet he has the cheek to say, against you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Yet at the deepest level, he's got it exactly right. That is, what makes sin so vile is that it is first and foremost rebellion against God. When we who are Christians try to talk about right and wrong in the world and when we try to justify the importance of Christians and what they do in the world, so often we're describing things merely at a horizontal level. You know, we Christians, by and large, statistically speaking, build better homes and raise nice children and good taxpayers and all all this sort of thing. We're honest in our dealings. That's the ideal, at least. It's all at the horizontal level. But when you read through the Bible from the first account of sin, Genesis 3 on, what is it that most typically is said to make God angry. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. 600 times the Bible says God is wrathful. 600 times. And overwhelmingly, he's wrathful because of the idolatry. So that even when we're committing these so-called horizontal sins, like sleeping around or blaspheming or cheating on your income tax or cutting people off in your vehicle because you're selfish or whatever it is, the most offended party is always God. Against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. If you're sleeping with somebody you shouldn't be sleeping with, the most offended party is God. If you're watching porn on the Internet, the most offended party is God. If you're not being honest at work, the most offended party is God. That's what makes sin, sin. Because the first commandment is to love him with heart and soul and mind and strength. And then our neighbor as ourselves. And the second is tied to the first. Only when we begin to absorb these kinds of things from what the Bible says, it seems to me, are we ready to face the implications of this first pillar, namely. By and large, the biblical stance toward these things is that God doesn't owe us anything. We're a damned breed. He could, with perfect justice, consign all of us to perdition. And when He appears in His matchless glory, we would have nothing to say. We will then see so clearly how we have been self-focused, how we have made our own idols, how we rejected the revelation that He has given, revelation in nature. Revelation in our conscience stamped on us because we too have been made in the image of God. Revelation from Holy Scripture where we've had access to it. Again and again and again, by nature and by choice, we're a damned breed. And God does not owe us anything. In fact, by and large in the Bible, there are some exceptions. We'll come to them. And nor have I yet dealt with innocent suffering. We'll come to that. There are a lot of other pillars here yet. But by and large, the biblical stance toward these things, the first Pillar to be established is, what's surprising is that God hasn't wiped us all out yet. What's surprising is how many freedoms we enjoy, how much food we enjoy, how much of life we enjoy, how much of liberty we enjoy, how many laughs we enjoy, how much pleasantness we enjoy, how many relationships we enjoy, how many good things we enjoy, considering how much our hearts are not, first and foremost, God-centered. But there aren't a lot of people in the broader culture that are busy going around through life saying, boy, this is, this is really enjoyable. Imagine wakeboarding for the whole weekend. Isn't God good? We really ought to think more about God's goodness. Oh, I'm sure the, the pastor and his family. But, but there are a lot of people who are wakeboarding on that same event who don't know anything about God. And they somehow think it's their due. But if they fall and break a leg, damn God. Which is such an inverted attitude from the Bible's first pillar, do you see? There is a remarkable passage in Luke thirteen Luke thirteen one to five. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices, so these are Galileans probably Galilean Jews, whom Pilate has killed for some reason, not explained, and then actually took their human blood and mixed it with the blood of the animals that they were sacrificing. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? In other words, why do you think this happened? Because they were worse? More evil? No, he says, I tell you. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, in that case, the suffering has come from an overt evil, that is, Pilate's overt evil. But the same argument holds when there are so-called natural disasters. Of those 18, verse 4, who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So, all the people that died in Katrina, do you think that they were more evil than others? Now, it's so interesting to see what Jesus says. He does not say, no, of course not. You know, they're fine people. It, it, it was just an accident. I mean, accidents happen. I mean, it's, it's, it's sad. You know, maybe God was taking a walk at the time, but it, it, it happens and, and, and they were fine people. There was no particular reason why they should die. That's not what Jesus says. He says the really surprising things is that You haven't died, but you will. You too will perish. So whether Katrina takes you out now or you die in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, the point is you're still all under this curse. You're still all under this sentence of death. That's the assumption. Did did you see? It's a way of looking at reality that, that utterly blows out the first objections. So those are insights from the beginning of the Bible's storyline. Now let me bring you some insights from the second pillar, insights from the end of the Bible's storyline, insights from the end of the Bible's storyline. I cannot sufficiently strongly stress that the Bible lays out a heaven and earth to be gained and a hell to be shunned. If you try to assess what's going on in righteousness or suffering or handicap or illness or the like, only in this age, if that is the framework in which you try to think about these things and no other, you cannot begin to make progress. You cannot begin to do so. Because inevitably, things will look a bit different 50 billion years from now. If you don't believe that, there's no way this conversation can go much farther. When I was a boy, we used to sing a song. It was a bit sentimental and squishy, but nevertheless, it had some truth. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. One look at his dear face, life's sorrows will erase. So let us run the race till we see Christ. There was a time when Christians were known, in the Puritan period, when Christians were known as people who knew how to die well. I'd like to know how many of you are known in your communities as people who know how to die well. And it was part of Christian concern to be known as people who knew how to die well. About three years or so ago in our church, there was a woman who came down with cancer. We'll call her Mary. This was her second round. She had had cancer five years earlier, and it was stage zero, breast cancer, the earliest, lightest form. It, 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 was, uh, it was judged completely, handled, uh, no ongoing uh, chemo or the like. It was, it, it was, it was terrific. She was, she was fine. Seven years later, it came back, and it came back with a vengeance. Now, Mary was a remarkable woman. She and her husband, lay people, had a great heart for missions. For example, they used about half the space in their basement to collect stuff for missionaries when missionaries come back, you know, they come back from who knows wherever they've been, and they're going to need toasters well, for their six months or nine months of furlough, toasters and blankets and this and that. She'd collect this stuff, sometimes buying it, sometimes scrounging it from Christians. She'd always say, "No junk. Missionaries deserve better than junk." And she'd collect all this stuff, you know, so that so that it was already there and available. She started a small business on the side and got a whole lot of women involved, working virtually free, so that the profits could all go into missions. She, she became head of her denomination's um, um, women's uh, uh, organization in, in the entire country. She was a remarkable woman. And now she had cancer. In September, she was diagnosed in May. In September, our church held a prayer meeting for her. And she was so well-known, although the church only had between five and 600 people, um, 287 showed up for a day-long prayer meeting for her because they came in from churches all over the place. I wasn't there. I was out of town. My wife went. And although this is not a church from uh, a warm-hearted, charismatic tradition, the prayers, as the day wore on, were becoming progressively more enthusiastic. Lord, you have said that if two or three of you on earth be agreed as touching anything, we got 287 here, and we're all in agreement. Lord, we want you to heal her. And uh, Lord, uh, Jesus is still the great physician. He never finally turned anybody away when he was on earth. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And Lord, um, we, we we want you to show that you're still the same today. We want you to heal Mary. Lord, you've seen all the good that she's done. How how, how can we possibly lose her at this stage? What will her husband and her children do? And go, you ratchet it go get ratcheted up and ratcheted up and ratcheted up. Finally, it was my wife's turn to pray. She who had almost lost her life twice. And she said. Dear Heavenly Father, we would so much like you to heal dear Mary. But we also recognize we're all under a curse. And if you won't heal her till the resurrection, then teach her to die well. Plant one foot firmly in eternity. Fill her with the joy of the Lord. Give her a heritage for her husband and children so that they will remember to look to Christ. We don't ask that she has an easy time. We ask that she's so full of grace that people will see Christ in her. Teach her to die well. Well, you could have cut the air with a knife. You're not supposed to say things like that. We were told afterwards by some of the relatives that they were rather hoping my wife would uh, experience this first so that uh, she could know whereof she was praying. In November, her husband phoned me. Don, I gotta talk to you, I gotta talk, I gotta talk to you now. So we went out to a coffee shop. Do you know what he wanted? By this time, Her health was going down and down. She had every treatment conceivable. She had a brain shunt in her head so they could put chemicals right into her skull. I mean, the church was wonderful at one level, bringing in food all the time, you know. How are you doing today, Mary? Oh, it's awful. Don't worry, we're praying for you. The Lord is faithful to his promises, you know, on and on and on. you know what he wanted? He wanted permission to let her die. She couldn't focus on eternity because there's so many flipping Christians around telling her she was going to be healed. What a stupid course of events. We're all going to die. Unless the Lord comes back first. I can't think of any exceptions in this room. Do Christians know how to die well? Death has just about in our culture become the last taboo subject. I can get a bunch of university students in, sit them around the table, I can get a conversation going on anything. Hey, what do you guys think about homosexuality? Bang, everybody's right in there. But if I say, I'd like to tell you how my dad died. Well, it's as if I've committed a huge social gaffe. Everybody's deathly still. Well this is going to be embarrassing. Whoa. But Christians shouldn't be like that. Whatever else a local church jolly well better do, it's prepare its members to meet God. And unless Christ comes back first, that means prepare to die. We had better be a generation that knows how to die well. For you cannot live faithfully in this life unless you're ready for the next life. It cannot be done. You cannot preserve morality or spirituality or doctrinal purity or faithfulness in the home or anything else unless you're living in the light of eternity. You cannot do it. So this stance from the end of life Begins to reconfigure everything in this life. So that even if there are sorrows. That we do not yet understand. One day. We will stand in the presence of the king. With our resurrection bodies. And we will look at everything. From a slightly different angle. We will see everything. Through the triumphs of Christ. And even the cancer that took us out. Or the suffering. Christians in in some. God forsaken part of the world. Where there is. Constant persecution, another theme to which we will refer. Where where there is judgment meted out in political and sociological and disease terms. All of those things will look very differently 50 billion years into eternity. In other words, one of the things that Christians have to remember is that here... There is no utopia. We may have our preferences in the coming up elections. Some of us may be pretty strongly convinced one way or the other that if only this party gets in or that party gets in, things will be a lot better in this country. Boy, have I got news for you. (laughs) Oh, there may be better and worse. Oh, no doubt. But here there is no utopia. None. There will not be a utopia. Oh, yes, we should pursue righteousness. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. But at the end of the day, until the end, there is no utopia. And we live in the light of that expectation. Let me end this first session by reminding you of something that C.S. Lewis wrote a long time ago. C.S. Lewis fought in the trenches of World War I, that most stupid and idiotic of wars, indefensible, inexcusable, without reason, without rationale. Ten million people mowed down by howitzers and machine guns for the gain of a few hundred yards, one way or the other, across a 2,300-mile trench right across Europe. A stupid war with no aim or no goal except this vague thing called national honor. He saw virtually all of his friends butchered in the trenches. He survived. And then a bare 20 years later, World War II broke out. And by this time, he was lecturing at Oxford University. The university chaplain in the university church didn't have a clue what to say to these young men. How do you get young men to be studying in wartime when everything seems so ultimate? What's the point of studying microbiology and Roman history and English literature, when people are mowing each other down. How how do you make sense of that? So the chaplain asked Lewis, who by this time was already beginning to establish, even as early as 1939, the beginning of a reputation for Christian apologetic. And on that Sunday night, he climbed into the pulpit. If you've been to an old British cathedral, you know how you climb into a pulpit up these stairs the pulpit so that you can look over everybody. Six feet above contradiction. <laughs> and he gave an address that has been published many times called Learning in Wartime. You can find it on the net. You can find it in his collected essays called um, uh, Seed, Fern, and Elephants. Let me just read you a few paragraphs. A university is a society for the pursuit of learning. As students, you will be expected to make yourselves or to start making yourselves into what the Middle Ages called clerks, into philosophers, scientists, scholars, critics, historians. And at first sight, this seems to be an odd thing to do during a great war. What is the use of beginning a task which we have so little chance of finishing? Or even if we ourselves should happen not to be interrupted by death or military service, why should we, indeed, how can we continue to take an interest in these placid occupations when the lives of our friends and the liberties of a Europe are in the balance? Is it not lo- like fiddling while Rome burns? Now, it seems to me that we shall not be able to answer these questions until we have put them by the side of certain other Christian questions which every Christian ought to have asked himself in peacetime. I spoke just now of fiddling while Rome burns. But to a Christian, the true tragedy of Nero must not be that he fiddled while the city was on fire, but that he fiddled on the brink of hell. You must forgive me for that crude monosyllable. I know that many wiser and better Christians than I in these days do not like to mention heaven and hell even in a pulpit. I know, too, that nearly all the references to this subject in the New Testament come from a single source, but then that source is our Lord himself. People will tell you it is St. Paul, but that is untrue. These are overwhelmingly dominical doctrines. That is coming from the Lord Jesus. They are not really removable from the teaching of Christ or of his church. If we do not believe them, our presence in this church is great tomfoolery. If we do, we must sometimes overcome our spiritual prudery and mention them. The moment we do so, we can see that every Christian who comes to a university must at all times face a question compared with which the questions raised by the war are relatively unimportant. He must ask himself how it is right or even psychologically possible for creatures who are every moment advancing either to heaven or to hell to spend any fraction of the little time allowed them in this world on such comparative trivialities as literature or art, mathematics or biology or wave riding. No, no, he didn't didn't mention that one. (laughs) If human culture can stand up to that, it can stand up to anything. To admit that we can retain our interest in learning under the shadow of these eternal issues, but not under the shadow of a European war, would be to admit that our eyes are closed to the voice of reason and very wide open to the voice of our nerves and our mass emotions. And then he goes on and on and on from there. In other words, so often when these questions are laid out in front of us, our horizons are just too small. They're just too little. We worry about the wretched devastation from a tsunami. And so we ought to worry. We worry about the wretched devastation caused by the equivalence of three tsunamis every year in Africa called AIDS. And so we ought to worry. But it's all nothing compared with the devastation coming from hell itself. For there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. And we cannot even begin to think about these questions properly until we get those first two pillars rightly in place and four more still to come. Now it's time for coffee.